Let's start with a prayer, as always. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, you who are the source of all truth, you who are the source of all being. You are the only one who is truly beyond evil because of your very nature you cannot in any way do evil. We ask you, Lord, to help us to be drawn more and more to your goodness, truth, and beauty so that we might put evil behind us and always choose you and your holy will. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I'd like to welcome now to our third talk of the uh, 2023 Lenten Lecture Series, The Architects of Modernity, The Construction of Our Modern Day Babel. It's a pleasure for me to first and foremost thank all of you for coming here. Um, I did not know what kind of a turnout we'd get. This is a good turnout because you really have to put your thinking caps on. You have to admit it. Um, but as I've mentioned before, God wants us to use our reason and our will, our reason to understand and to know and our will in order to choose. And of course, the highest form of choice is love. And that takes work, as we all know. Uh, I'd like to do a quick shout out uh, to a parishioner and school mom who wrote a great article in the Catholic Servant. So if you haven't gotten your Catholic Servant, um, you can always pick one up here. You can probably order one or get a subscription. But Rachel Liu wrote a great article about why we need to understand where we are at and what is the current of thought, what is the power of the ideas that have influenced our modern world. Uh, so I'd like to thank her for that wonderful article. And now I'd like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Dr. Mark Spencer. He is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of St. Thomas. He is also academic advisor to the Hillebrand Project. After receiving his BA and MA from Franciscan University in Steubenville, he completed his PhD from the State University of New York in Buffalo in 2012. Dr. Spencer has written and spoken extensively on the human person, beauty, art, metaphysics, theology, and phenomenology. He is the author of two very recent books, The Irreducibility of the Human Person, A Catholic Synthesis, and Catholicism and the Problem of God. Finally, Dr. Mark Spencer and his wife, Susanna, are proud parishioners here at the Church of St. Agnes, as well as St. Agnes School parents. I welcome Dr. Mark Spencer, who is speaking on Nietzsche Beyond Good and Evil. Thank you. God is dead, proclaims Friedrich Nietzsche in his book, The Gay Science. That might sound at first like the smug proclamation of an all too confident atheist. But then he goes on. We have killed him, you and I. We are all his murderers. How can we console ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? Nietzsche proclaims that in the modern age, the belief in God has become unbelievable. And this is because those who profess belief in God have, by their hypocritical actions, made it impossible for others to believe in God. Yet he thinks this is not a cause for atheists to be smugly self-congratulatory. Nietzsche thinks that just as we can no longer believe in God, so likewise we can now no longer plausibly believe in anything based on faith in God, including all of morality, perhaps all of meaning. He says, the holiest and the mightiest thing the world has ever possessed has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood from us? And yet, despite his worry about a loss of meaning, Nietzsche thinks the loss of belief in God is a cause for cautious rejoicing. He says of the murder of God that there was never a greater deed, and whoever is born after us will, on account of this deed, belong to a higher history than all history up till now. I want to introduce you this evening to this philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, 
who is both a philosopher who has most decisively shaped and expressed our modern mindset and one of the greatest critics of our modern world. He was born in Germany in 1844, and he died there in 1900. At the time of his death, he was probably the most widely read philosopher in the world. Nietzsche thought through exactly what it would mean to live in a world with no God, in which nothing is stable, but everything is constantly evolving, and in which everything in us human beings can be explained physically and biologically. We have all been affected to a significant degree by these views. We all live in a Nietzschean world. Nietzsche is especially helpful for us Christians because his entire philosophy is a challenge to Christianity. There are many atheists, like the so-called new atheists, folks like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, who reject God but still want to retain ideas like justice, political equality, human dignity, and so on. I like to call these guys the happy clappy atheists. They, uh, they think you can get rid of God and not much else is going to change. They think that once we drop believing in God, everyone will become cheerful and tolerant and fully moral. Nietzsche helps us see how if you reject the God of Christianity, you must reject all of those things too. If one thinks that everything that exists is physical or biological, one cannot plausibly hold on to universal morality or human equality or universal tolerance. Nietzsche is an honest atheist, and so I think he is a worthy opponent for Christians. But his critique of Christianity helps us examine ourselves, too. His criticisms of Christians are an excellent encouragement to examine our consciences. Much of what he critiques is not really Christianity, not what we actually believe. But it is very often an accurate portrayal of how Christians often behave. He identifies those insidious motivations, those resentments and hatreds that so often infect our lives. He helps us see how dis distant our attitudes often are from real Christianity and what a scandal this is to the world. Before I focus on Nietzsche's key ideas and his influence on our culture, let me say a little bit more about his life. He was the son of a Lutheran pastor, but early in his education, he came under the spell of historical critical studies of the Bible and of materialist, strictly evolutionary philosophy. His classical education also led him to become enamored with the passion, vitality, and nobility of the ancient pagan Greeks. Under these influences, he abandoned the Christianity of his youth. He took up a career in philology, the study of words and their origins, and became a professor at the University of Basel in Switzerland at a young age. But he was not interested in just studying the origins of words. He was convinced that by examining ancient literature and language, we could recover the way in which ancient people experienced the world, and we could transform how we now experience the world. Nietzsche saw that the modern world was becoming nihilistic. That is, we were losing any sense of the meaning or value of things. Modern economy makes people think only of the usefulness of things for making money. Modern democracy makes people think only of human equality, failing to see how some people are more gifted than others, taking the nobility out of political life and reducing it to sterile bureaucracy. Modern life, Nietzsche thought, makes people mediocre and weak. When he compared modern society to the military heroism and the artistic and intellectual genius he saw in ancient Greek writings and myths, he was dismayed. He wanted to recover that ancient grandeur, that sense the Greeks had for the meaningfulness and value of this world. One other influence on him early in his career was the composer Richard Wagner, whose grand operas seemed to recover some of the heroic greatness of the ancient world. Nietzsche thought that, alongside his own scholarly work, Wagner's operas might help people find a greater sense of vitality, power, and magnificence, a sense of human beings as driven by violent passions that spur us on to greatness. He expressed these ideas 
in his first book, The Birth of Tragedy Out of the Spirit of Music. In this book, he also opposed the rather pedantic methods of modern scholarship. His fellow philologists were not pleased. And both for that reason, and because of his frequent illnesses, he had to give up his professorship. Nietzsche also fell out with Wagner at this time. He opposed Wagner's growing German nationalism and his anti-Semitism, as well as Wagner's increasing interest in Christianity. For the rest of his career, Nietzsche lived largely alone, in poverty and sickness, traveling around Europe and writing books. He was also convinced of his own genius and the uniqueness of his insights into the modern world and into human nature. We see this in the chapter titles of his autobiography, Ace Homo. Chapter one, why I am so wise. Chapter two, why I am so clever. Chapter three, why I write such good books. But syphilis, contracted during his service in the Franco-Prussian War, eventually took its toll. And in 1889, Nietzsche suffered a mental breakdown. He spent the last 11 years of his life in a mental asylum. Helping to care for him was his sister, Elizabeth Furster Nietzsche. She was a member of a group that was a precursor to the Nazis. She had been part of a failed attempt to create a German colony in Paraguay, run along basically national socialist lines. Nietzsche had opposed her ideology, but his sister recognized how, partly rewritten, his writings could serve her cause with their praise of strength and their exaltation of power. Uh, while he was incapacitated due to mental illness, she published new editions of his books. Because of her efforts, he became very widely read, though he was never aware of it. And he also became, despite his own views, an influence on Nazism, something Hitler himself acknowledged, as we see here in this picture. Nietzsche's real ideas express where the dominant secular views of our times should lead if taken to their logical conclusion. Let's spend a little time thinking along with Nietzsche, starting with his premise that everything is merely biological or physical. If we're just biological organisms with no soul or spirit, then everything we do is an expression of our biological states which are always changing, evolving, growing, or decaying. This view contrasts sharply with what Christianity, Judaism, and classical philosophy hold, that there is a stable, unchanging core to reality. On that traditional view, while the physical world might be always changing and developing, God is unchanging, stable, and certain. The human soul, made in God's image, is also stable, at least when it is virtuous and reasons well. Unlike the senses, abstract reason allows us to arrive at what is certain, what is true always and everywhere. On that traditional view, which Nietzsche opposes, what is real is what is rational, stable, unified, eternal. But if everything is physical and evolving as Nietzsche thought, then there is no stable core to reality. Nothing remains the same over time. Nothing's truly unified. If our beliefs, like everything else in us, are just a result of our biological state, then there's no point to try to figure out whether our beliefs are true or reasonable or coherent. If Nietzsche is right, you and I are not stable, unified selves. We're just bunches of matter, atoms, cells, organs, growing and decaying. Nietzsche sees that in a purely physical, evolving world, a world without God, there is no such thing as reason or truth, because truth requires something stable that the mind can grasp. A purely evolutionary view, as opposed to a view on which evolution is guided by an unchanging God, should lead us, Nietzsche shows, to pure relativism and amorality. Nietzsche thinks that Instead of asking whether a belief is true or false, we should treat beliefs, we should treat beliefs, reasonings, and everything else we do as symptoms of our biological states. 
In this, he anticipates the psychologizing attitude popularized by Freud, which we heard about last week. Nietzsche thinks that people whose biological lives are healthy and strong will produce ideas that express their health and strength. By contrast, sick and weak people will produce ideas that express their illness and weakness. In some cultures, like ancient Greece, strong people predominate. In others, like modern Europe, weak people predominate. We shouldn't try to argue against weak ideas. Rather, we should try to understand the kind of life that produces those ideas. If we're weak, we can't help but express ourselves in weak ways. But if we're strong, then we can make sure that we live out our strength rather than being manipulated by the weak. And we can make sure that our culture becomes stronger under our powerful influence. Nietzsche believes all of these things based on his understanding of modern science. Medicine shows us, he thinks, how thinking is entirely a product of brain processes. Evolutionary biology shows us, he thinks, that organisms, including us, do everything out of striving for their own survival and flourishing. Philology, he thinks, reveals how words and grammar are just expressions of culture's pursuit of survival, flourishing, and power. But what Nietzsche really wanted to explain is human values. That is, he wanted to explain why we, as individuals and as cultures, find certain things important and worth striving for. Modern people find things like equality, justice, and tolerance important. These are our modern values. Ancient Greeks valued courage, physical beauty, and power. These were their values. As we saw in the quotes about the death of God that I started my talk with, Nietzsche was really worried about the loss of meaning and value. In making the idea of God implausible, we moderns have destroyed what was holiest and mightiest in the world, what could actually give people a sense of meaning in their life. As modern people came to realize that there is no God and that everything is just the result of mindless physical processes, they started to lose any sense that anything is important and they became weaker and more mediocre. The whole focus of Nietzsche's philosophy is trying to figure out how we can retain a sense of value and meaning in a world without God, objective morality, reason, or truth. Nietzsche works out his solution to our modern loss of meaning, as well as his criticisms of Christianity, by developing a story about how mankind got to where it is now. If we look to ancient cultures, like the Greeks in Homer, we find them expressing what Nietzsche calls a morality of good and bad, rather than our Christian morality of good and evil. The good people on this morality are those with the strength to dominate others. Good people are those who are beautiful and powerful, like the heroes and gods in Homer. Bad in this ancient morality means slavish or weak, in the sense that it's bad to be a slave just as it's good to be a hero. That is, anyone would prefer to be a hero to being a slave. But the heroes and aristocrats don't hate slaves. They just see them as weak, necessary tools. The relationship between the good masters and the bad slaves is like the relationship, Nietzsche says, between an eagle and its prey. The eagle doesn't hate its prey. If the eagle thinks it's bad to be prey, this just means it likes being an eagle. And it likes eating prey rather than being eaten. That's the relationship between the good masters and the bad slaves. The good in this scenario can fully live out their strength. They don't reflect on what, whether what they're doing is what they should be doing. But they're like predatory animals living out their instincts without guilt. And Nietzsche thinks this is a sign of their health. Just as, as we heard last week, Freud said some decades later. Human beings are driven by all sorts of violent passions. The strong person uses those passions to do great things, like feats of military greatness, or producing great art, or pursuing knowledge, as was done by the ancient Greeks. The strong person doesn't suppress his passions or ask if they are morally good. 
but he uses them to make a beautiful life. The weak person, the slave by contrast, is not strong enough to use his passions in this way. The weak person is afraid of his passions, knowing that if he acts on them, they will destroy him. And so, as Nietzsche tells it, he suppresses his passions. The slave also resents being a slave. He doesn't like being the slave or the tool of strong people. Out of this resentment, the slave comes to hate strong people. This leads to what Nietzsche sees as one of the most consequential events in human history, what he calls the transvaluation of values, the switching around of what's important. Slaves in the ancient world began to see everything the strong did as evil, and the things that they themselves did as good. Living out one's passions, dominating others, having pride in one's accomplishments, seeing some people as better than others, all of which the heroes and aristocrats did, is evil. Controlling one's passions, reasoning prudently about how to live one's life, being consistent, ascetic practices, temperance, humility, turning the other cheek, saving the life of the weak, safeguarding rights, promoting equality. All of this, the slaves came to see as good. The morality of good and evil, as we understand it today, Christian morality, the morality of conscience, is an expression, Nietzsche thinks, of the weakness of slaves and their hatred and resentment of the strong. Reasoning, morality, and as we'll see in a minute, monotheist religion, are all in Nietzsche's story an expression of the hatred of life displayed by weak slaves. This slavish morality, represented by Christianity, is nihilistic. It tries to destroy the real lives and meaningful values of the strong. But how did this morality of the weak come to be dominant in the world? That is, how did the weak manage to convince the strong to accept their morality, since everyone accepts this morality nowadays? In addition to the weak and the strong, Nietzsche introduces one more group into this story, the priests. Sorry, Father. <laughs> in every culture, there's a group of people whose biological health and strength is kind of middling. They're not so strong that they can become heroes, but they are stronger than the slaves. They recognize that they can use the resentment of the weak slaves and the great number of slaves to gain power for themselves. And so they pretend to be on the side of the weak. They promote the things that the weak value, and they invent a morality of objective good and evil. To give the weak something to hope for, but also to control their behavior, they invent the idea of a single god and a happy afterlife. They say that an unchanging, perfectly good heaven is the true world rather than this world that we actually experience. In this way, the priests further nihilism, getting people to hate the real world and place all their hope in a world that doesn't actually exist. And then, since the priests are also somewhat strong and are very clever in scheming, they are able to convince the strong to feel guilty about their own strength and to adopt the religion and morality of the slaves. In this way, the priests get everyone, strong and weak alike, to hate real life and feel guilty about it, and thereby gain power over everyone. The category of priests here includes not only actual priests of various religions, but other religious figures too, like the Buddha and Jesus, and philosophers, who taught objective morality and the superiority of reason, like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. I think Nietzsche would put today's academics in the category of priests. Why have academics allied themselves with every mass movement, every political struggle for rights over the last half century? Nietzsche would say that we academics are trying to stay on the side of the weak, mediocre masses so that we can tell them what to hope for and so that we can control them and have all the real power in society. Many people nowadays have embraced Nietzsche's story about religion. As Pope Benedict XVI noted when he contrasted Nietzsche's worldview to the worldview of the Beatitudes, Many people nowadays think that religiously and morally serious people, especially Christians, are opposed to real bodily life. 
They think that if only Christians would lose power, then everyone could enjoy life and do whatever they wanted without guilt. But Nietzsche pushes the story further than that. He helps us see where this story must lead. Since Christianity began, he thinks, things have gotten progressively worse. Catholicism, at least, he says, appreciated many of the values of the strong, healthy, pagan Greeks, like military skill in the Crusades and beautiful art in the Renaissance. But things got worse with Protestantism, which removed beauty from the churches and promoted a dry, life-denying, puritanical morality. And with the rise of secular liberal democracy, things got even worse, Nietzsche thinks. At least with Christianity, Nietzsche thinks, there was the idea that you were denying yourself life now, but you would live a strong, joyful life in heaven later on. In modern secular society, by contrast, one is just supposed to be moral for its own sake. One is supposed to value all people equally, that is, overlook the difference in value among different people's lives. And one is forced to go along with the crowd in everything. No one really has the freedom to pursue their own sense of value. One might be allowed to pursue pleasure, but no one does anything great with these pleasures and passions. Modern secular society, he thinks, is completely nihilistic. It is pure mediocrity. Those who hold on to Christian values, like objective morality, without Christianity, are to him the most pitiful of all men. The one redeeming quality of modern secular society, Nietzsche thinks, is that it has made belief in God unreasonable. This, he thinks, is where Christianity ends up, killing off the very idea of God on which it was based. But we are now, he thinks, in a dangerous situation. On the one hand, we could succumb to nihilism, seeing life as meaningless, living mediocre lives forever. Or, on the other hand, we could treat this moment as having cleared away our illusions about life, allowing us to get, in his words, beyond good and evil, to true meaning and value for the first time since the ancient world. Nietzsche helps us see how we got to where we are today. Indeed, he's a decisive shaper of the dominant contemporary secular worldview, but he's also a fierce critic of those who hold that worldview for not taking it to its ultimate conclusion. What then is Nietzsche's solution to the problem of the loss of meaning in the modern world? It is not a return to the ancient, heroic, violent world. Rather, the only one who can solve the problem is the creative genius, the one he calls the ubermensch, the overman or superman, the next stage of evolutionary development beyond human beings. As we heard two weeks ago in Dr. Liu's talk, the goal of modernity is transhumanism. We can only be happy by going beyond being human. The ubermensch, the creative genius, does not try to discover what is valuable because nothing is valuable in itself. The world's a constantly evolving and meaningless place. Rather, the ubermensch is one who, out of an abundance of strength and love for life, creates values. That is, he can decide for himself what is valuable. Now, lots of people nowadays have embraced language like this. We hear lots of people promoting being creative, expressing oneself, deciding for oneself what's valuable, being true to oneself, and so on. But once again, Nietzsche would be sharply critical of those who use his language, but have not thought through what their words actually entail. Pretty much everyone who talks like this actually just goes along with whatever is popularly regarded as valuable. But if Nietzsche is right, then society cannot provide value to me. Only I, by my will, can decide what is valuable for me. The ubermensch, the creative genius, must be solitary, creating value by himself. Some might pursue artistic beauty, like the great poet Goethe, pictured here, who is one of Nietzsche's models for the ubermensch. Others might pursue military greatness. Still others might pursue knowledge. But each person must decide on everything for himself. I mentioned earlier how Nietzsche's sister used his ideas to promote Nazism. Based on this, German nationalists during World War I and national socialists under Hitler used Nietzsche's books to promote German strength and power. But this was a misunderstanding of Nietzsche's ideas. 
Nietzsche was opposed to Nazism and nationalism because they subordinate the creative individual to society. No one can decide for me what I will value. Each person must be alone in his creativity. Everyone must be a god for himself. There's one final piece of Nietzsche's philosophy we must grasp to see where an anti-Christian society must end up if he is right about the world. Nietzsche's solution to the loss of meaning in the modern world is the creative will. Nietzsche thinks that everyone is seeking power. The driving force behind everything we humans do is what he calls the will to power. This is one of his most influential ideas, one that is rampant, very popular today. Many in the various social movements based around racial or gender identity hold that we cannot trust what people say because everything that people say and do is a mask for their seeking of power. Religious texts, literary texts, historical events must all be debunked as nothing but expressions of different groups' pursuit of power. But once again, from Nietzsche's view, the problem is that people are not strong enough to fully embrace this vision of life. Contemporary advocates for social justice, for example, often see everything that people do as attempts to gain power. And yet, they envision restructuring society, say along socialist lines, so that eventually they think we will not seek power. But for Nietzsche, this is weak, slavish reasoning. Nietzsche takes to its ultimate conclusion the modern mindset, which, as Dr. Liu explained two weeks ago, is an exaltation of power and will over nature and intellect. All actions, Nietzsche thinks, are driven by the will to power, and they always will be. If I am going to love life, I must love my pursuit of power, because life is nothing but the pursuit of power, and there's no escape from that, nor should I want to escape from that. But also, as we've seen, Nietzsche thinks that at bottom, everything that exists is blindly evolving matter. So my will is nothing but a blindly evolving physical process. My will to power, my creativity, are nothing but an expression of my biological life, an idea that we find throughout the contemporary world as well. Paradoxically, my will to power is entirely determined by my biology. The truly creative person then, as Nietzsche sees it, is the one who can say yes and amen to everything that occurs, who loves and embraces fate. The one who can say that everything he does is the result of biological evolutionary processes and is what he wills to happen. Unlike social justice warriors who fight for a better world and thereby show their hatred of actual life, Nietzsche says yes without reservation to everything that occurs. That's Nietzsche's philosophy in a nutshell. Immoral, blasphemous, exuberant, insane perhaps, and deliberately irrational. What should a Christian make of all this? What can we learn from Nietzsche, who called himself the Antichrist? I mean, what can we learn beyond seeing where so many ideas in the contemporary world have come from, and seeing an interesting way to critique some of those ideas? What can we learn about ourselves? Let's see how Nietzsche can help us examine our consciences as Christians. Nietzsche first helps us see why Christianity is so hated today. Christianity does require a love for the poor and vulnerable and weak to the point of being willing to die for those worst off, as Christ does. Insofar as Nietzsche criticizes this love for those who are least, he has really understood the core of Christianity, and he opposes it. Nietzsche hates Christianity because he hates how it casts down the mighty from their thrones and exalts the lowly. Rather, Nietzsche would like to exalt the mighty and leave the lowly as slaves. We see here how, even though Nietzsche was personally opposed to his sister's Nazism, it was easy for her to use his writings to promote Nazism. Nietzsche has his view because he thinks that caring for the weak and vulnerable diverts attention away from the strong, creating values, which is what gives meaning to life. Contemporary society is less brazen and probably less honest in its rhetoric, 
But it has inherited Nietzsche's hatred for the very vulnerable in the quest for strong, healthy life that Nietzsche promoted. Nietzsche reminds us here of a key point made by St. Augustine, one that is often overlooked. Christians' disagreement with non-Christians, including Nietzsche, are often fundamentally not a disagreements about what is true, but a competition among orders of loves. We most differ over what we most find worth loving. Our evangelization must inspire different loves, not just convince others of truths. In confronting Nietzsche, I must ask myself, am I focused above all on loving what is most lovable, not just defending truths? Nietzsche, with his exuberant praise of the beauty of strength, helps show us that we tend to be convinced to change our beliefs and our ways of life when we find some worldview beautiful. That is, when it attracts our love, when we can see how a worldview inspires and enhances our whole life. We must learn to see not just what is false about non-Christian views, but we must learn to see why they appear meaningful and lovable to so many people. I must ask myself, can I see what is beautiful in non-Christian views and help others to see what is even more beautiful and lovable in Christianity? We must learn to see why non-Christian views appear to so many as if they were expressions of strong, healthy life, antidotes to nihilism. Nietzsche wants to make Christianity appear ugly and weak. To overcome Nietzsche's influential views, it will not do to only argue against them, we must make Christianity both appear and really be beautiful and strong. The stance that Nietzsche advocates, a joyful, creative yes to all things, is in many ways the stance that Christians should have. Christ came to give us abundant life, to make our joy full. We are meant to be entirely abandoned to divine providence, gratefully receiving everything that happens to us as a gift from God. Unlike Nietzsche, we do not take ourselves to be gods creating the world. But we should ask ourselves, do I have the strength to joyfully accept everything that happens to me as a gift from God? Do I have the strength to join my will to God's will for the world? Faced with Nietzsche's challenge, the Christian should not exalt false humility, but should show how Christian love is even stronger than Nietzsche's yes to all things. But Nietzsche also thinks of Christians' love of the poor and humble as inspired by resentment and hatred of the strong. This is, of course, not what Christianity teaches. But it is often, I fear, what motivates some actual Christians. Too often, some Christians are motivated by a longing for worldly power and a hatred and resentment of non-Christians, especially powerful ones. If we are to witness to the truth, goodness, and beauty of life in Christ, we must be aware of this temptation that Nietzsche observes. We must be aware of how Christianity can, or how Christians can become nihilistic, denying the beauty and goodness that is genuinely found in the world, displaying a dour and life-despising morality, focusing on God and heaven in a way that drains all the joy and value out of life. I must examine myself. Am I motivated to do Christian things out of resentment towards those in power? Am I, am I promoting a slave morality that rejects what is of value in all that is beautiful and good? Am I pursuing God and a moral life out of hatred for life? One of the greatest benefits, I think, of reading Nietzsche is that his powerful, boisterous zest for life can inspire us to have that same zeal, making our own lives appear more beautiful. But, of course, it is Christ who actually gives that beauty and who gives true strength. A Catholic philosopher can help us to see that. Max Scheler was a German philosopher in the early 20th century. Pope John Paul II wrote his second dissertation on Scheler. And Scheler was sometimes called the Catholic Nietzsche because his philosophy expressed the same worries about nihilism and the same zeal for strong, beautiful life as Nietzsche did. But Scheler saw that Christian love for the least, as displayed by Christ and the saints, is actually an expression of strength, not weakness, but of a different kind of strength than that promoted by Nietzsche. To go out of oneself in care for another 
or to deny oneself worldly pleasures ascetically and humbly need not be expressions of resentment or hatred of one's passions. Rather, they are based on an experience of a kind of life that is even higher and stronger than physical and biological life. If Christianity is true, then we already have the very life of God within us by our reception of the sacraments. We care for the weak and we humble ourselves because it is an expression of a greater strength and health than the will to power, a greater power than that sought by modernity. It's true that the will to power does in fact motivate much of the world. St. Augustine spoke of the lust for domination, the libido dominandi, that has driven human beings since the fall. Nietzsche expresses perfectly what the world would look, look like if that were the last word about reality. But the good news is that things are better than that. In response to our fallen will to power, Christ gives us the will to charity, to pouring out abundant life upon others, to coming together in the unity of Trinitarian and ecclesial life, not out of longing for domination, but out of self-giving love. To respond to the critique leveled by Nietzsche, Christians can show beautifully that it is possible to live otherwise than motivated by the will to power. Only this will allow us to achieve the meaningful life that Nietzsche so rightly desired and that he so wrongly pursued. Thank you. Isn't this exciting? I love this stuff. I think uh, Nietzsche would approve of us saying that these lecture series are not just a series of talks, they are dynamite. So, uh, I'd like to have a little Q&A, and of course, uh, we're gonna keep it short and sweet. And as I always say, the best ones are for clarification. The best questions are clarification questions, but let's go. And we're gonna have Dr. Spencer repeat your question. Uh, I'll be the moderator. You have silenced them. <laughs> <laughs> the will to lecture. <laughs> yes. So did Nietzsche's ultimate uh, uh, mental issues make him one of the weak ones? <laughs> yeah, this is a, it, the question was, did, did Nietzsche's mental illness make him one of the weak ones? Um, so this, I, whenever I teach Nietzsche in class, this, students always ask this, like, Nietzsche seems like a pretty weak guy. Like, he, uh, he, he, he tried to get married and failed, like women wouldn't have him, and he was sickly, and he was poor, and nobody read him while he was sane. They only read him after he had gone insane. Um, so he seems like, yeah, he's, he's one of the weak ones. And, and Nietzsche is, is upfront about this. Nietzsche does not hold himself up as one of the Ubermensch, Ubermenschen. Uh, he does not take himself to be one of the strong. He takes himself to be a sort of prophet of the strong. Um, so in, yeah, in some sense he would say, yeah, yeah, he's one of the weak ones. He's a sort of product of modernity. Um, but, uh, but he somehow was able to see, he thinks, what was coming. Um, and in many ways, he was able to see what was coming very well. Um, but, but he thought he was able to sort of see into the, into the depths of reality and what needed to come in order to bring meaning back to the world. But yeah, he would grant he's one of the, one of the weak. I turn the middle. Um, I, I've heard this ascribed to Nietzsche. I don't know if it's a direct quote. Um, I can't think off the top of my head sort of where it would be. There's a tale in southern, trail in southern France that holds true to that saying. It's, it's, it's an extremely difficult act. That, that if, it, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, it, it, it's, sort of, it's a slogan that encapsulates his, his philosophy in, in many ways. Um, this sort of, you gotta, you gotta grab onto the difficult things of life out of this embrace of strength. How do social justice advocates have an attachment to Nietzsche when he's, what his writing is about is strength and power, but really what we hear from social justice advocates is no, we should be opposed to the power and, and everyone should be the same. Yeah, I don't know if a lot of social justice advocates, sorry, so the, the, um, the question was, um, how is it that social justice advocates 
um, would hold on to Nietzsche or would use Nietzsche when Nietzsche is advocating power and social justice advocates are opposed to power and want to sort of downplay power. Um, I, I think the, the story is maybe a little bit more complex here. Um, so I think a lot of social justice advocates are not going to hold up Nietzsche as an ideal. Um, but they have been influenced by his rhetoric. So this, this language around everything being um, an expression of power, um, all of our motivations being driven by a desire for power, this is very heavily influenced by Nietzsche. But they're not necessarily embracing a Nietzschean vision of things, sort of whole hog, so to speak. So, you said that um, he's expressing his writing what his vision of reality is based on this self-advocacy. Mm -hmm. um, and like from, I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit because I see our world and just all of the self-advocate, live your own truth as a way that is going to be competing and ultimately a destruction and downfall of society. So when you said that he paints a picture does he see successful society based on self-advocacy, or does he see it as ultimate nothingness? Um, so his sort of ultimate vision for things is uh, each ubermensch, each superman, creative genius. Um, oh, sorry. So the question was, uh, sorry. Um, so the, the question was, um, does he see this this creativity, this um, this sort of embracing your own truth as leading to a vibrant society. Um, he sees each Ubermensch as, as a solitary genius. He does not see this as a sort of recipe for societal renewal. Um, it, it's a very individualistic vision at the end of the day. Um, if everyone is sort of doing what they should be doing, each of us will sort of decide for ourselves what is valuable. Uh, each of us will uh, creatively sort of craft for ourselves the life that we want. Um, and we'll be in conflict with each other, or we'll just ignore one another. Um, but it's not a it's not a, a recipe or a plan for um, sort of a, a, a great society. It's a plan for great individuals. Way in the back. And Dr. Spencer, do you feel like striving for success in business kind of puts you on this niche of relative destruction? I'm just asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jared. Uh, so the, the question was, uh, is striving for success in business uh, putting one on this sort of destructive Nietzschean path? Um, Nietzsche does not have nice things to say about modern business. Um, so he sees this as sort of one more symptom of the, the sort of uh, collectivizing mediocritizing trend of modern society. Um, so he sees the sort of the, the quest for money makes us see each other all as basically the same. We're sort of all interchangeable with one another insofar as we have this common medium, money, that allows everyone to be sort of equalized. Um, so I, I, I don't think Nietzsche would see um, striving for success in business or striving for success in modern politics or in the modern academy or any of our sort of modern in institutions as, uh, as what he's advocating. Right? He's really advocating sort of uh, go it alone, break free from society, don't listen to society at all. Um, and, and really follow through on that. So again, as I was saying before, uh, a lot of people embrace this rhetoric, but they actually become conformists. Um, he's saying, no, take it all the way, go off alone, create your own values, and, uh, and live that way. Um, so you'd see a real split there. Um, how, might, uh, how might he approach the uh, Ten Commandments and uh, the morality that we all live? Yeah, so uh, this, is, this is, I think, a prime example of that, um, that metaphysics of uh, ethics of good and evil, the Christian morality. So he sees um, the turn from sort of pagan morality, as he really sees it encapsulated in the ancient Greeks, but we could see it in the ancient you know, Mesopotamians or Egyptians, the turn from that to Judeo-Christian morality as this turn to slavishness and weakness. Right, so in the Ten Commandments, we are commanded to, uh, to serve God, right? to honor God above all. That is, not to honor ourselves and our own creativity, 
but to honor this invisible being that he doesn't think exists. And we're, we're told to uh, you know, love, our, love our neighbor, honor our parents, love our neighbor by not killing people and not stealing and all the rest of this stuff, not coveting. Um, and this is, in effect, to suppress our passions. Right? We all have these, these desires to, to dominate others, desires for uh, sexual passion, desires for acquisition, uh, all of these desires. And instead of sort of creatively exercising these passions and living them out, that's what he wants us to do, uh, we're supposed to suppress them and keep them controlled. Right? And, and this is the expression of this nihilism, this, this hatred of our own biological life that he sees. So he sees the Ten Commandments as sort of encapsulating like, everything that he hates about morality. So the Ubermensch could kill someone if that was an ex if the if the Ubermensch wanted to kill someone in order to express his own creativity, that's his prerogative. Like no one can tell him that that's wrong. Can I do one more. Yeah. Sure. I kept skipping over one person. Yeah. Sorry. Say that again. Um, so Nietzsche, he he was very thorough in his philosophy. Like he, it seems like he explored everything as far as like he felt he could take it. So I'm just wondering if he, how he dealt with the kind of seeming contradiction of seeing that there was, or believing that there was no objective truth, and therefore that reason could not be trusted when it was like ostensibly his reason that like led him that point and also like kind of like on a similar note striving for things that were like objectively beautiful without a sense of like anything stable like it seems like that would cause a great yeah. yeah yes so the the question is um how is it that nietzsche can uh, at one and the same time, oppose reason, right, and say reason is an expression of weakness, and yet he uses his reason to work all this stuff out. And he opposes any sort of objective morality or objective sense of beauty, um, and yet he's striving to create something beautiful, and he's advocating for a particular sort of morality, anti-morality. Um, so there seems to be these fundamental contradictions um, in his thought. Um, like I've been saying, Nietzsche is an extremely honest thinker. Nietzsche is well aware that he is contradicting himself. And he tells you that he's contradicting himself uh, again and again. Um, he thinks that uh, to be rational, uh, to be con logically consistent, is an expression of weakness. And, uh, and so you should just embrace the, uh, the, the contradictions here out of love of life, out of creativity, out of expressing your will. Um, so he, he, just, he just takes this sort of as far as, it's, as, as it can go. Um, and that's the sort of vision that he would advocate for us. Like, don't worry about truth. Don't worry about objectivity. Don't worry about rationality. Just express yourself. Um, and that's why I think it's a very honest vision. Um, a lot, again, a lot of his rhetoric has been embraced by lots of people nowadays. Um, but they're not willing to take it to that sort of ultimate logical conclusion. Um, and Nietzsche says, if you're going to embrace that language, go all the way. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs>